Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. We also wanted to mention that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is also live. That's the knowledge graph and linked notes version of our main page's show notes that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, guests, and topics. Episode 225 coming at you right now, and it's the second part of our interview with John Nicholson. If you missed the first part of our interview with John Nicholson in episode 224, it's definitely worth going back to give that a listen. John talked to us about tech marketing as a career path and how one might get into that field, if that's something you're looking to do. And he shared some really good considerations before taking a job based on a blog post he wrote on his website, thenicholson.com, which we'll link to you in the show notes. We talked about understanding the job, feeling out the management team, looking for some red flags in the interview process, and then dealing with executives. Perhaps they might appear like wild bears. I'll just leave that one there because that was a great comment that John made. <laughs> so this week, it's about show me the money, isn't it, John? That's right. All about compensation. Um, and just to kind of reiterate, you know, Nicholson's been a pretty uh, strong positive influence on both of our careers. 100%. As we both entered into VMware. Props to him. He's somebody who's always paying it forward. It was really great to have that conversation with him. I think the thing that I would love to kind of have people look out for was some of John's tactics for dealing with unsolicited approaches on LinkedIn is really interesting approach. Um, and I don't want to ruin it for anybody. Also the description of managerial attitudes towards compensation, both, you know, while doing hiring and afterwards kind of two different things that he talked about. And third, the intricacies of dealing with stock as compensation. I thought that was a really fascinating conversation that uncovered some things that I think not everybody thinks about. I totally agree, John. And it was interesting how the conversation as a whole about compensation ended up pushing us into a conversation about good managers. So listen closely, dear listener, to see what you think. Here we go with part two of our discussion with John Nicholson. Should we start talking a little bit about compensation, how to how to do some evaluation there as well? I, I like that you save this for like kind of halfway in because you should not just open up with like, hey, what's the number? Although I have definitely been guilty of when a recruiter slides into my DMs and I'm like, this doesn't look terribly exciting. And I would just throw back a three digit number uh, with the first digit being a number and the other two being zeros and then a question mark. When I was making like 70,000 or something, I would just like 
be like any recruiter to slid in and it didn't like jump at me. I'd be like hundred thousand question, particularly with like the recruiters that like, ah, I think this guy's probably a waste of time. And, and it did just avoid a lot of conversations. But also I had some recruiters come back to me and they're like, actually, this role's not, but I do have some that I'll keep you in mind for. So there are some times for like a blunt, like, hey, I'm a space pirate. You're a space pirate. Like, here's what here's the number we want. But at the same time, when you're actually interviewing with real people and talking to managers, like I wouldn't necessarily lead with that stuff. Like if you're working for a large tech company, it is not that hard to figure out what, what the approximate range is or like at least try to reverse engineer what the bands are. So there's some websites you should go to right now. Uh, levels.fyi you can pause the podcast go there and these guys have it's a bunch of basically compensation specialists and xhr for like the fang companies who have reverse engineered basically the engineering levels and they they've done salary surveys and so and they will and they don't just it's not like glassdoor which glassdoor you know they're like here's base here's variable whatever they actually will break down they're like hey this company does rsus they typically do three-year grants what's the cliff on those what's the breakdown um, this is stuff I cover in the blog post if you want to learn more on. But that is some of the stuff of understanding what that compensation was. Because like I remember it can be a big deal to where someone's like, oh, yeah, we're going to give you a quarter million in stock. And then it's like, oh, but I'm not going to see most of it till year three. Like that's that's a big deal. What's the bonus structure or like how often do the bonuses get paid out? You know, have some people in the network who work there. Because if you talk to someone and they're like, oh, yeah, like you got to be a top performer to actually get paid bonus. And we haven't had bo- we've missed the bonus like three of the past six cycles versus like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you get 100, you're probably a screw up and going to get fired. Like you should you should 120 minimum, like uh, depending on the culture, those things can be wildly and they can change. But starting with the big numbers, but also working down to some of the smaller stuff, uh, employee stock purchase plans. It's, it's, it's like a roulette game where it's heads I win, tails you lose. So worst case, you get a, a fixed return of like 15% for basically effectively loaning the company money for six months. But you get the upside if the stock goes up. It's how ESPP works. It's, it's a really fun roulette game um, is what I like to describe it as. Quick question. Since we're recording this during a time when a lot of companies are laying off in the tech industry, I wonder, would it be an interesting question to ask a recruiter or someone like this? How has the benefits package changed in the last six to 12 months because of the economy? I mean, yeah, when 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 the sun shine and it's eternal summer and we're 10 years into a into a bull market, I, I there was a theory there for a while that some tech companies were just hoarding excess engineers in case that they needed them because the comp plans were spiraling up. I mean, it's kind of I have heard that uh, some survey data I've seen does show that basically offers are going down slightly. That said, I mean, the growth of offers in the past 10 years has probably been pretty nuts. And, and one thing you can do is if you look at levels.fyi is that once you log in and you sign up, you can actually look at a particular band and see what the, when those offers were made. And it'll tell you, hey, this is a stale offer. This is like four years old. Or like, hey, here's an offer last week for a uh, member of technical services three, you know, at this company. And that's the equivalent. And you can even lay multiple companies next to each other. So you can be like, oh, at Microsoft, I think their levels are weird. It's like, oh, this is like a level 67 or something, you know, versus at this company, it's like, IC4 or something. And and learning kind of how some of that stuff works. This is like a, if you have any friends who work in HR, go take them out for drinks and get them to explain how leveling systems work and how they're supposed to be like a standard distribution. And this is something like, let's say you're interviewing for a job. You want to become an SRE. They're offering you a, a level three and they're offering you 140 base variable to 200, but you really want 240. And you can go look at there and say, you know what? That is outside of what any of the offers are at that level. But 
at the level four that's there. And so that may be a thing where you need to, during that cycle of interviewing for the job, say, hey, is there any way, like, I have a lot of experience here. I actually know the technology you, you need. Or, you know, in sales, I know the accounts. I know that. I know you're looking for a more junior person, but can you bump this up a level? Because and, and sometimes they may not, you know, this is also something they may not actually volunteer what that level is. And it may be a little flux, but there's generally an internal cap that was initially assigned to where, hey, we weren't planning on hiring more than a band four, but we found a band five and I'm going to go make an argument that we should hire them at that. Or they might go the other way, right? If you don't have quite the experience, but you seem like a really good fit, they might lower it one level for you. I, I did that as a manager. There were times where like I was interviewing for a senior consultant and I found someone who like was not that, but he was two years away from it. But like I knew I could get him at a good price relative to, you know, I could pay him more than he was getting paid. And I knew he could grow into that. And I was like, you know what? I like I'll I'll be okay mentoring you. That's fine. You know, I'll take the discount. It's weird like referring to someone as a discount person, but like at the end of the day, and when I was reading resumes, I would look down the list of skills. And if I saw skills that I knew were expensive but I didn't need. So like someone was like Oracle Rack DBA admin. I'm like, that's expensive and I don't need that skill. I'm not even going to interview this person because it's completely unrelated and it's just a dollar signs that are going to they're going to be looking for, you know, that level of comp and I don't need that skill set. And that gets back to, you know, tailor your resume to that and stuff. But at the same time, like you're a senior SRE and they're offering you, you know, level one desktop support or something. Maybe you need to look at your resume and like say, you know what, I'm going to get rid of the stuff that says I know how to fix printers. So people stop asking me about jobs where you fix printers. I mean, I'm never going to remove bare handling skills from my resume. That's just a weird talking point. But like, that's, that's something to think about is, you know, when you're, if you are trying to up level yourself, you're trying to make your look like a more premium senior person, then, then do that. That said, if, if the offer, you know, if where you're trying to get at or you're trying to get a specific place, don't have a bunch of expensive skills that are unrelated, that would make it you filtered. You just dropped a bunch of gold nuggets there, tailoring your, your resume. I really had never thought about tailoring your resume to remove an expensive premium skill that is not relevant to the, uh, to the job that you're applying to. Yeah, that's a good point. It can spook people. But really, the other way, like if I had a, an A-plus certification... I would I would yeet that off my resume and my LinkedIn if I didn't want to be doing entry level printer repair or something depressing. So if you have a CCNA and you don't want to touch a network and you haven't done it in five, you haven't touched a switch in five years, like just remove that from the resume. It can come up casually during the conversation. But if they really want that much networking, you don't want to do networking, then just don't put it on there. Maybe it's where the manager sees this, say, these skills all look like they're relevant and I can afford them. I, that, yeah, that's so interesting to to look at a resume and say, without having that cover letter that says, I would like this job to know essentially the job that they're looking for. There was a movie, I think it was Fight Club, where there's a scene where it like, goes to an apartment and I think everything had been bought from Ikea. And there's like dollar signs and like line items to every single thing in the apartment. And like that is mentally what was happening when I looked at resumes. I've never heard anybody put it like that. That's really cool. If you get the company a good deal on an employee solving a problem, I would imagine there's some sort of incentive for you to reuse that budget maybe, or just ju share that you protected that budget. Is that accurate? At the end of the day, I didn't care that my guys were making good money. So like there's, there's this cynical thing that a lot of younger IT people I think fall into where they think like, oh, the management gets bonuses based on keeping me down on not getting raises or not paying well. Okay, maybe someone in recruiting like has some 
comp incentive to try to hire people and not pay too much for them. And that's why they're involved in the negotiation phase, not the managers. Most managers don't actually care. Like as long as they can get that approval and it was reasonable and they feel like they didn't get burned, you know, it's like buying a used car or something. And then you find out afterwards what the real value of it was. But that's something to where when I think through it, I I don't think most managers are actively trying to be like, oh, I'm going to see if I can get this guy down 10%. Because you know what? The the other thing to think about as a manager is if you're paying someone too little, they're going to leave. And and what was nice with consulting is all my people under me, they were billable. And I could draw a P&L and see exactly how much money they were making me. And we had carry costs, there were overheads, you know, I had annoying salespeople to feed, you know. You know, we had we had a building, we had maintenance. Um, you got FICA, you've got insurance, you got all these. Uh, you know, what's called fringe, the fringe carry cost of the employee. But at the end of the day, if my profitability on an employee to where they were like on one of these billable resources, because we were pretty lean, if I was paying them, uh, you know, a hundred thousand and I was making over two hundred thousand, then I needed to close that gap because I tried not to make more than two dollars per their 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 cost to me. And mind you, that cost was more than just the base. But if that started getting too egregious, somebody else was going to poach them. And then I had to train someone and hire someone. And the the more senior and the more relationship focused the job is, or the more like, hey, we need somebody who knows, you know, foundation database, which is this like obscure giant big data platform that very few people use. Uh, We need someone who's a high end engineer on this and also knows Kubernetes and and some other DevOps framework or something else, you're starting to look for purple squirrels. And in reality, what you're going to do is when that person leaves, you're going to have to train someone or you're going to have to hire two people if you need a replacement, or you're going to have to pull someone off of something else that's important. And that just annoys you as a manager. It really does. So managers at the end of the day, I don't know, maybe there is some incentive to try to optimize budget, but that's just so that they can give budget to someone else to keep them. Good managers just don't want good people to leave. It's expensive. It's time consuming. We have to, you have to stop being a manager. You have to go back into the trenches and, and, you know, be a switch header at that point. You know, you have to cover gaps. You have to explain why you're missing SLAs. I don't mean to like talk down on that statement, but it is something like to think about is like it, it costs, it costs a lot when you turn people. So like I, a good manager should not begrudge anyone getting paid what, you know, they want or they're worth. And when you say turn people or they leave, are you including leaving the team and maybe going to a different position internally? Or do you only mean leaving the company? I mean, here's the thing. When someone goes to another area of the company, in theory, it's handy because it, that, that's not quite as damaging because generally you can get a little bit of overlap out of them, or at least they're easier to ask questions. It's awkward asking someone who like left VMware and went to Red Hat or IBM, like, hey, how did you do this Like on an internal system? You can only do that for like a week, man. So a good manager will openly encourage, you know, lateral or diagonal movement. Good managers I've always had internally have said, look, you know, if there's something you want to do, if you're unhappy or if there's just something you have career aspirations that are, you know, working on something else, let's work on that. If And it's weird because people don't want to be honest with managers about this. They want to like be, you know, thief in the night, like sneak out at the last minute because part of the problem is bad managers or just employees who like are perpetually unhappy and hop, which this cuts both ways. If a manager thinks you're not going to be around very long and they've got budget for raises or they've got a pile of, of golden stock awards to hand out, who are they going to give it to? The guy who's really good and really advancing, but is probably not going to be around in three months or the guy who's loyal, does fairly good work, not like a superstar, like there is a perverse incentive to not reward your best employee if you know you can't keep up with his skills and his pay. 
And instead, you know, to, to a certain degree, you may need to sit down and be like, look, I know you're going to be a principal engineer. You're going to be a um, you're going to be a fellow or something in, you know, 48 months or something. Remember me and the little guys when you get there. But like, let's let's draw a plan. But there is a balance. I have seen someone sabotage their career by basically hopping too much, always looking around, always unhappy. And so even though they were exceptionally brilliant, exceptionally hardworking, they they basically ended up bouncing between three different teams, never got a promotion because no one saw them as loyal to that team. I think that one of the things that people don't realize is that getting raises and, you know, more stock refreshes or or whatever, you know, the compensation is, you know, bonus money maybe, is it probably costs the manager more political capital than it does actually like actual budget. Yeah, my senior director has to go to a table of other senior directors in front of the VP and there's a giant pile of golden coins on the ground and he has to argue, hey, I need a steady stream of them going to this guy. And so it's not only your manager for that promotion. This is something I didn't really realize until like a, a director sat down and explained this to me. He's like, it's not just about me liking you, but if all the other senior directors or the other directors or whoever is at that table, if they like you, then when I go and say, I need to get John more money and all the other guys are like, honestly, I can't argue with that. Like, yeah, I got some guys I want to take care of, but John's actually helping us too. You need other managers and, and and the other teams under your organization to be advocating for you. So like in tech marketing, I, I need the the directors and the senior directors of product management to say, you know what, John really helps us, you know, if, if they're under my VP or I need the the product marketing groups or if there's other groups, you know, I'm on the storage team. I need the group who works on cloud or other things to say, you know, John's actually written some content for our people and he's he's helped some customers, you know, he's really come through or he's done good joint presentations with people like you need to be that person because if you're really good in your team and you make your team look good, but you don't help the other people who are at that round table who are having to sort through that pile of golden coins when there's only five promotions on the ground and there's five managers who are arguing for promotions for 20 people, you need your manager to make sure you're in the one slot that turn which you may have to wait your turn if there's multiple people, things like that. But also you need the other managers, the other people at table are like, yeah, yeah, it's his time. That's a great perspective. And then, like, if you're a good person and you work on yourself, like you should be wanting to help other people with stuff. Like, don't be that guy who's like, I have three KPIs. They're sacred from passed down, chiseled from God on tablets. And if you're not on my KPI list or you're not my MBO managed by objective key performance indicator, if you're not like one of the three things I'm supposed to do in the six months, like, go away. I don't care about you. Like, don't be that guy because it actually, it hurts you in ways you don't realize. Yeah. I think most people don't think about that, the the political part, you know, and, and what you were just talking about. Hey, not, not just my team and, you know, visibility, not just to my immediate manager, but to the managers, my manager's peers. Like, what am I doing to help those people? Yeah. And th- those people, they, you, you owe them nothing. Like if, if your manager's peer asks you for something, and like you're busy and you have stuff to do, like part of your manager's job is to be like, go away, like s- sit there and like stiff arm them. You know, I'm using a sports analogy here as awful as it is, but like have that arm out and be like, nope, nope, I'm blocking, I'm blocking. But like if you can be like, you know what, I got some cycles. This is a reasonable request. Let me give them some feedback or let me oh, let me help engineering with the demos, you know, or whatever it is. If you if you can find the time to do that within your you know, spare them some cycles and be cool, like they'll be cool with you, you know. And then you, you follow up, right? You're like a, a few months later, you say, Hey, like, what do you think that I need to do? You know, talking to like that out of band manager, what do you think I need to do to, to get promotion, you know, in one of the upcoming cycles? 
it is it is something and looking for feedback on how you're perceived because your manager some managers are going to give you blunt truth and like i'm okay with that some managers will just be like it's all roses and sunshine like yeah you're doing great you're doing great yeah i really like your work and then quietly when it gets to the table they're like he he achieves his goals he doesn't exceed expectations you know they'll just like you know, full, it's like full Southern backhand, like bless his heart. You know, he tries like, you know, the, you don't know what they're saying. I like the blunt ones because I know where I, I know where I stand with them, but y- you're going to get both. W- you're going to get a better viewpoint, actually, of where your manager by by your manager's lateral peers, by spending some time with them, working with them. You know, you, you'll get a, you'll you'll get some subtle clues of where your manager actually views you that you may if your manager is a bit more opaque, that can help. It sounds like one of these foundational skills is to be able to to, to use your your organization's like tool for uh, going up and parallel on the chain of command. Like, what is what is the org chart? Every company should have an org chart tool, right? And if you don't know how to use yours, then then you should learn. Or, org chart tool or tools. The other thing with org charts is like this is this is something you really should know. Is like you'll get that org chart and it's like, hey, these people work for these people, but like, what do these people do? What should I be talking about? The amount of times that I have worked in companies or consulted in companies, which is worse, because like I'm there a month, I shouldn't know your org chart better than you do. Where I've had to introduce people who work on the same floor with each other and have for years of like, hey, this this problem you're working on, that guy already solved it, or y'all are both working on the same problem. Like, go to lunch with random people, you know, or just have some have some random calls. That is actually one thing that is difficult with working remote is you don't have those happy interactions. I found out about the VMware ARM team years before that project came out because I just sat down at a table with some people and was like, hey, what do you guys do? That's that's a happy interaction you can have when you work at a campus. When you're remote, you need to like have some curiosity and be like, why is this person talking about this? They're sliding their DMs. Like, hey, can we? it looks like you're, you're working on this project. Can, can we have a quick chat? And that's that can help you build those those lateral connections. And those lateral connections also, if you ever lose your job or you're worried about losing your job, or like you're like, ah, oh, my team or my product, when you're at a giant pan galactic, you know, evil software company, those can be other places to land. Because let's say, like, I don't know, VMware decides storage is is out tomorrow. Having some friends in the AIML space or having friends in some of the management or other spaces or having the networking people be like, man, he had some really good feedback, you know. That can help you slide laterally. I know it's weird if you've only worked at small companies, the idea of like losing your job and then reapplying internally. And like that sounds like a really bizarre concept, but it is something that happens when you get above, you know, 20,000 employees that like people get laid off and then go find literally another job internally uh, before the 60 days is up. It's, it's still bizarre to me to say that, but let's keep on talking about compensation stuff that maybe people don't think about. You did a little bit of discussion about. Stock. I, I think people, you know, know to to think about retirement, and and we'll get there. But um, there's stock programs that maybe people don't think about until they start working at a, a large publicly traded company or maybe a startup that's pre IPO. Just programs like getting you know restricted stock or having an employee stock purchase program. Those are things that you should use to evaluate the company, yeah? I don't want people to look at the company stock every week and freak out. I think you and I worked together through some fairly turbulent times for the VMware stock. In fact, right after I started, my initial RS use, I think the the letter, they came in valued at like 78 or something. And then the stock within like a month uh, collapsed in half. 
And like people freak out about that. Like people run for the doors. And it sounds weird, but like when you do have a lot of compensation tied up in stock, when the stock goes down, a lot of stock is a golden handcuff. It's something that because it's on this plan that's time delayed and that delay, some quick terms we'll go over here. Cliff. Cliff is if I get a grant, when do I get the first bite of that money? So like if I have a four-year grant on a one-year cliff, that means I'm not going to see the first amount of stock until my one-year anniversary of that grant. So that is something to try to chain me to that desk. Sorry, just to back up, usually the RSUs are restricted stock as part of your offer letter. I don't know that everybody understands that. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to you don't want to st- you don't want to start and then be like, "Hey, do I get some stock after the fact?" Like, no, 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 no. Ask for that up front. Good, very good point to interrupt there on. And then there's like, okay, so like maybe you get a quarter of it at one year, and then let's say it's like an even keel, and then it's like, hey, every six months you get twelve point five percent till the end of that. It could be backloaded, um, and I think Amazon used to do this. I'm not sure who does or if they do anymore, but this could be a like, hey, the majority of it is actually you're not going to see till year two or three, so we want to see if you work out, you know, kind of thing. You know, one other software company I heard of, like their cliff is at one, your one month, and then it's just an even rate per month. And so it's like, oh, this is just like a variable comp that's tied to the stock price, which, okay, cool. That's actually kind of chill. So you you need to, you know, find out when the cliff is, what the releases are, what percentages they are. Is it even? How does that work? Um, There's that initial grant, and then there'll be what are called refreshers. And so the refreshers may be similar to the original grant. They could be less. Also, keep in mind the company's aware of the stock price. I have heard of some tech companies whose stock was going up significantly. To where someone like got promoted, they were expecting a big raise and they had a lot of outstanding RSUs. And basically their boss told them like, hey, you got promoted. You've done great work. By the way, the stock's tripled. So congrats. We've already paid you. Yikes. Sorry. The release you're talking about means that I can sell those. Yes. And you should sell it immediately. Always sell your RSUs at Vest immediately. And this is a, unless you're like fabulously wealthy, because holding your company stock long, first off with RSUs, they are taxed as regular income at Vest. So if you had a hundred thousand shares, you know that vested in one year, which is a lot, by the way. But like, let's just for simple math here, that is a hundred thousand that is added basically to your W two as regular income. And they may have held some shares and sold some shares for you to help offset taxes. So you'll have what's it'll show up as like a it's called I think RSU offset or stock offset on your payroll forms. And so like sometimes they'll hold like twenty percent of the shares back. But if you're in a 30% bracket, like you're, you're still going to owe taxes. And here's the fun thing. So let's say that 100000 of stock vests. Cool. I've got this money. I can taste it. I can lick it. It's a stock certificate. You know, It's in my E-Trade account. And the company goes bankrupt tomorrow. Congrats. You owe taxes on $100,000 still. Oof. Now you can report a capital gains loss, but capital gains losses do not offset regular income. <laughs> Yeah, you're gonna you're be you're gonna be carrying that forward against uh, stuff for the next few years. I, the one thing that you, something you said, which was super ugly, it just occurred to me, is if you have a company that both does stack ranking, right? So like ten or twenty percent of the workforce is going to get fired, maybe like any given year, and they backload the restricted stock. So it looks like they're giving you a big offer, but there's a 10 or 20% chance that you're not going to be around to get well over 50 or 60 or even 70% of that money. So it's all funny money. And, th- and this can get even wilder to where um, there was a, an extreme case. And I'll, I'll throw some shade because I don't care about them. If they, you can come at me, bro. I don't care. So Zanga was reported in the news to have looked at it was options. So options are like kind of like it's a private company. 
is typically where those are handed. They can be given a public, but they're generally given a private. And options are tied to a strike price, like the stock. And, and they also are tied to you generally being there. They're, they're heavily backloaded to where it's like, hey, at five years, you'll get this pile of money. So it's like, hey, we want you to be committed to this startup and stick around. Well, Zanga, you know, they went public. That's the other problem with like private companies. The liquidity, like trying to sell anything at a private company is it's it's a fake market. It's like phantom shares and that gets weird. I don't even want to go into that. But so let's say the IPO, it's big money. You've been there 40 years and 300, you know, in 40 days. And the finance team looks at this and goes, oh, this guy's about to have like $5 million. He's just going to retire. You know, or it was it was an obscene. It was a it was someone who had been there very early and had a very large pile, and they started going through and they built a spreadsheet of these people and they went to them basically two weeks before their their options were going to vest and said, "Hey, you need to surrender some of those options or we're going to fire you." And they won't vest, and they got sued over that. And I don't remember what happened, but like for public companies and RSUs, you're never going to control that much. It's fine. No one's going to do that to you. With private companies. You were you were negotiating to lease, maybe uh, you know the right to lease in five years a car of unknown value and an unknown currency. There's a website tldroptions.io that will help you understand based on what series of funding your company's in, statistically the likelihood of them IPOing, whether they'll IPO at a good exit to where the money where the options will be in the water, what your percent equity, what it what basically you should value that at. But it is uh, commonly people commonly refer to options for private companies as lottery tickets for a good reason. And the fun thing is, is like sometimes you have to like, let's say you've been there five years, you've got those options, you need to leave uh, the company, you got another offer, you're going to leave, you now have to basically execute those options, you have to like basically buy them, you have to pay taxes on them. And then the company could still just delay IPO for 15 years or fail. And you basically paid money, you paid taxes, and you ended up with worthless lottery tickets. So like, I don't mean to be cynical here. But there's a big difference between working in a public company with RSUs where like the day they vest, I can log into E-Trade, put in my two-factor, mash the sell button repeatedly. That order executes within, you know, you know, N plus two or whatever. And I have that money and I can wire it to my bank account and go pay my bills versus options where and they'll try to razzle dazzle you. People will be like, Yeah, we're gonna give you like a, you know, five hundred thousand options or five hundred thousand private shares. It's like, okay, what's the share price? Who else have you given shares to? Oh, okay. So like, I'm going to have 2% of the company. I'm actually going to have $500,000 of options. That's cool. That's that's cool. Cool, cool, cool. And then you start looking around and you're like, wait, 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 wait. Who else did you give stock to? What did you promise them? So there's this fun thing called ratchet clauses that gets triggered. And this has happened with some tech. When you have a tech exit that is below what they promised those last rounds. So com- this will show up often in those real late rounds, the D's and E's, where you've got large bankers coming in. And they'll say, hey, you know, the, the the joke bankers have is like, you tell me the valuation, I'll write the paper. Oh, you think you're a $2 billion HCI startup. That's cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you $200 million or $2 billion, you know, 10%. Oh, by the way, we get the first $200 million. And if you don't exit for over a billion, we get 100%. So they start writing like these crazy writers. They're called ratchets because they claw back equity. And they basically say, yeah, there's other people who have stock, but we get paid first. And here's the problem. When you work for a small private startup, um, we talked about awkward conversations with executives. When they're offering you shares, if you start asking questions sometimes like, hey, so you're offering me 500,000 shares. How many shares are outstanding? How many more rounds of funding are we going to go? Two things can happen here. One, they can get annoyed that you're actually asking them what the pesos are that, you know, whether these are Argentinian pesos or Mexican pesos that they're offering you in. Two, there's no SEC really involvement in, in private companies. They can just lie to you and be like, yeah, yeah, we're going for big IPO. 
and then sell a week later underwater and your options are worth nothing. There's a lot of tiers. And it used to be, if we go back prior to some of the financial reforms, companies would like get to 100 million revenue, cool, 100 million revenue, go public, boom, done. And Mark Cuban and others have talked about this. Nowadays, with all the regulatory overhead, people are like, you know what? Like, we don't really want to go public till much later. And that means that instead of you going and joining, you know, three, three or four startups in a 10 year period and taking swings at exits, you're joining one or two startups in that period. And we only have so many working years. And if those long, those are long shots, the, it's, it's starting to get like, you know, you get to only spin the roulette wheel twice when you're betting on, betting on a single number. And that's, that doesn't get fun. So that, and that's, that's something again, you know, look at that stuff. If it's a, if it's a highly public company, if you're going to work for Microsoft, you know, that stock's been pretty boring. It's going to go slightly up forever, probably, um, versus like you're working for some company that only has a, you know, 3 billion cap, uh, capitalization. It's public, but maybe there's some volatility. Maybe they're having some headwinds. Maybe the stock's been, you know, cut to a third of what it was. Why was that? These are questions you should ask. Uh, you don't have to become a finance person overnight, but if the stock is at trading at 20% of what it was, that company has some unhealthy things or something bad has happened. And can you also go over the employee stock purchase program and the way that tax implication works? Because I don't think everybody understands that. You know, for people who don't know what that is, as we talked about before, you as an employee of public company XYZ can put in money to buy stock at a discounted price over a period of time. Yeah. And they withhold from your paycheck. So like, let's say it's for simple math here. I think the maximum is 7,500 or something per half, but there, there is a, a legal max IRS has. But so let's say you're putting in 7,500 or let's say you put in 10,000 because math is easy at that point. So let's say they guarantee a 15% discount. So that means you're going to get 10,000 to so 15% on that. So you'll get 15, you'll make 1500 bucks in six months. So 15% return on a six month investment. That's, that's fantastic. That's a great return. And actually, you know, I know interest rates have gone up, but that's still a pretty good return, right? That's if the stock goes down or stays flat. If the stock goes up, you get to buy it at the old price at the beginning of that six month window at the 15% discount. So if the stock doubles, you get 115%, um, which has happened to me that basically over the course of a year. And sometimes you'll have like two windows for the year and the second window can also look back to the first period. So you get three prices to swing at. Some companies will say, yeah, once you get the stock, you have to hold it. So sometimes there's a, a lockup and there's some risk in that. But if it's an immediate unlock and it's a discount, that is free money on the table. You're basically loaning the company money on a short term. When that upside swings hard, you can walk out with, you know, I think I made 20 grand in one year. And I'm not saying that like I'm some shrewd investor. It's just, I was there at the right time where the stock had gone down a lot and then it went up a lot. <laughs> now, the, the tax implications on this, that is your post-tax money that went to buy it. So let's say it's 10000 that went in and then you got a, you got an extra 1500 You owe taxes on that 1500 If you sell it immediately, you, if you sell it immediately, which I always do, you owe short-term taxes, which are basically your, your, whatever your marginal, whatever your bracket is. If you hold it for a year, that will be long-term. But so let's say you're in a bracket, you're paying 33%. Let's say uh, capital gains are 20%. So that's a 13% tax spread. Well, yeah, it's 13%. I should hold it for a year. Well, one, there's risk. And two, it's not 13% on the total amount. It's 13% on the gains. So you're having to risk the house money. You're having to risk that 10,000 to try to change the 10, uh, you know, a 13% swing on taxes on $1,500. And you're risking $10,000 to do that. I mean, if you want to gamble, that's fine. Or if you got lucky and it was some period where it doubled, then yeah, okay, it's we can optimize taxes on ten thousand because it doubled. 
if it's just that 15%, if the stock was flatter down, just hit, hit mash that sell button. The only time you should ever think about holding ESPP long is if you get in some wacky position where it's up over, you know, 100% or something. RSUs just always hit the sell button. There's nothing different fundamentally on taxes, how RSUs work between you selling it at vest or you selling it and then buying the, the shares back. Like there's no, there's no real difference. People get confused on that. Well, the other reason why I say don't hold your own company stock, it's not that I don't believe in VMware as a company. It's just that if something bad happens to VMware, the stock's going to go down. I'm going to increase the chance that I lose my job and I'm going to impact my savings that I'm going to need since I lost my job. It is a multi gut punch to hold your company stock. Now, I know a lot of times when companies do layoffs, their stock goes up because the market are perverse weirdos. But if something really bad happens to your company, you know, it turns out that virtualization causes cancer tomorrow. It's, it's, it's something where like, I need to make sure I have contingencies. That was just a great discussion. It's too bad to cut it off right there. I feel like we're getting into something uh, just as equally as amazing. But let's, uh, for the sake of not having excessively long episodes, cut it off right there. I just love that discussion of stock options. I think restricted stock versus a stock option is a subtlety that you generally just don't have to deal with or understand or even know exists until you're considering working at a company that one offers uh, restricted stock units, if it's a public company or stock options, if it's a startup. Um, if you're working at a private company that has no intention of ever going public, they might have something called shadow stock, which we, I don't think talked about, but you know, that's a, that's a whole other can of worms. And it's just those things that unless you're in that situation, you probably don't have any experience dealing with that or know, know what to do in that situation. And, and John just kind of laid it out there, which, which is really terrific. I'm, I'm glad we have that down on, on wax, so to speak. Yeah, it was great. And absolute food for thought for people looking to join a startup. That's a different angle that none of our previous guests have really talked about in, in detail. Yeah, that risk reward, I think, is uh, really interesting there. How about that resume as a list, a list of skills, but also an itemized list of expenses that a manager is looking at? It's almost like John Nicholson was encouraging us to look at that as if you're ordering at a restaurant and here's how much the bill is going to be at the end. I, I really never thought about it like that. Yeah, it's an interesting attitude. I think now that I am a manager and I have to think about that thing, I'm in the process of going through a hiring cycle, I don't know that that was an experience that I've had. I haven't looked at a resume and said, oh, I'm going to have to pay for that. I'm going to have to pay for that. I'm going to have to pay for that. It was a little bit more like, here's the skills that I need in the person under, you know, potential profile, hiree profile A versus, you know, like a slightly different hiring profile and, you know, any subtleties in between. And in profile A, you know, does this candidate match the kind of skills that are needed for profile A? Or does the candidate match the list of skills that are needed for profile B? 
and and let me make that a little more con- concrete like so you know if i'm hiring a entry level sales engineer i can perhaps find somebody who has experience operationally with the product right so that's profile a or i can find somebody who's been a sales engineer at a similar type of company who i think would very quickly be able to spin up on our product and technology that's profile b and i'm sure that there's shades in between there right but those are kind of your two like gross profiles that you you're examining people for so it's kind of like a, a shopping list as opposed to a bill but of course there's going to be a bill at the end so i kind of understand what john means you know if you are putting on that you have extremely senior level um, experience and skills then it's very difficult for a hiring manager to not think of you as being you know at the upper end of the price range and they need to consider whether you know you would be even available for you know whatever budget they happen to have so i understand what he's saying i wonder if that is the same challenge that someone who is looking for a lower level position than in what they've been in before or seemingly overqualified for this position runs into. I just thought of it as we were talking. Yeah. If you're overqualified for a position, right? Say I'm going to take something out of our industry. Say you're going to the gap and you want to get hired for a position as like a general clerk and like merchandiser. So you have to refold t-shirts and stuff like that. And if on your resume, you put down that you've been a team lead for a position like that before, then somebody goes, oh, well, you know, that's like really good experience. Like you've had, maybe you're a senior level version of that. If you put that you've managed a a clothing retailer, like an entire branch in a major metro area, then maybe you're putting down that you might not be affordable because you've had so much experience. And it just depends what it is that you're trying to do, which goes back to what we've always said is you want to tailor your resume to the things that, you know, the job you're trying to get. Sure. I guess I just never thought about removing the skills that are perceived as expensive before that recording, you know? I don't know that I would do that, honestly. You know, either they're not relevant, you know, in which case the organization isn't paying for those, right? So I might, I applied for this sales engineering management job and I might be, a black belt in uh, taekwondo and or swing dancing if you're hiring yeah or yeah i'm a black belt in swing dancing right so you know that's just not a skill that's relevant to this position so they don't care if i've if i've you know managed a ross dress for less you know in downtown san francisco that maybe is relevant but you know probably still probably not right it's a stretch so you know those those kinds of things are just I would, you know, maybe leave them off for relevance as opposed to, you know, you're pricing yourself out of the position. And maybe we should also say the perception of expensive skills really isn't necessarily your perception. It would actually be the hiring team's perception of what's expensive. Yeah. And can you can you read their mind? Nope. It's an interesting it's an interesting conversation. And it may be a point that we should bring up with other people I like um, who come on who are hiring managers, right? Because you know, like I said, like I'm early in my tenure in that position. I haven't even gone through a full hiring cycle for somebody. So I don't know the ins and outs, you know, of that, but a really good, yeah, interesting questioning point rolling forward. I thought it was um, interesting to kind of level set with a recruiter who reaches out to you unsolicited with a potential position. 
And John's response of like, Hey, here's kind of where I am and what I make. And like, are you really approaching me for this position? And that's like an automatic filter, right? Cause you might be automatically pricing yourself out of their position. And my perception of some of these recruiters is that they're, they used a filtering tool to kind of get a, you know, here's 40 people. And then I'm going to send them all one message, not something that is actually tailored to me and my experience every once in a while an email will mention you know specific companies that i've worked for but even then like it's really not too hard to kind of fill those things out and then have it just drop two companies that you worked for sure <laughs> you know even these days you know ask chat gpt to write me a, what sounds like a personalized email <laughs> well that just goes to show you maybe you can't expect that someone will tailor their message or recruitment message to you like you would tailor a resume to a job description yeah it's very true i really do like the idea of sparking the recruiter's idea of you saying oh no you know i'm approaching them for this type of job but really the type of job they're appropriate for is this other one and maybe i don't handle that so i'll refer this candidate over this potential candidate over to my colleague who handles those people and or I handle that type of position. And the next time it's available, I'm going to you know save this person to my potential list of candidates for that position. So that's kind of, again, a, a really interesting tactic that I hadn't really thought about. You know, we talked about how I didn't really see the the, the shopping list of expenses on somebody's resume, but something John said about your question about holding down compensation and is there an incentive for mm -hmm. that? Like really jived with my, you know, it was really strong alignment. Like there's, there's no incentive to hold down compensation. Like, in fact, you know, you want your people to get paid well because then they're going to stay around longer and, you know, view this as a good job and, and a company that invests in them at the same time that they're investing their time and effort into the company. So that, really strongly aligned with my experience so far my my three whole months of experience hey that's that's enough to get somebody a referral bonus or should be <laughs> <laughs> no i'm just kidding oh my goodness that was another example john of one of those interviews well it's almost every interview you make a rough outline of what you might ask and then you don't know what answer is coming at you, and we can, we can go in some really interesting places. And I feel like it was just fantastic. Yeah, that's that's any any discussion with uh, Nicholson. Pretty really much interesting points of view. We should probably also mention that he's on the Virtually Speaking podcast. I think still with Pete Fletcher, right? Yep. Yeah, definitely check that one out if you haven't. One of my uh, longtime favorites for VMware specific technology, but but also throughout the ecosystem of virtualization. So really, really cool discussions there. And they've had a couple good career episodes. So if you haven't browsed their library lately, there there are some really good ones in there too. Agreed. Next week, wait, there is a part three, isn't there? This is a trilogy. Oh my goodness. A three-parter. A three-parter. So after all this goodness, what do you talk about in part three? Should we tease something? Yeah, like what are we what are we looking forward for? Well, I feel like we're negotiating on what we should say, so maybe we'll just talk about negotiating offers and perhaps beyond that next week. Ooh, I want to hear that now. <laughs> now, Nick, now. It's a no because oh. we're out of time. We'll have to wait till next time.
Just a reminder, we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White, at BJourneyman, for Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore, signing off. Adios. Adios.